following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. I think we've been blown sunshine from so many directions, we're tired of it. Uh, we're sick of it. We, we despise pretense. We don't even get us started on political or politicians or political ads or TV ads. Those are the easy targets. What really gets us is the pretense that we see just all around us in normal life. And if we're honest, the pretense that we see within ourselves. So we crave authenticity. We crave it because we see a lack of it everywhere and we loathe it when we see it in ourselves. So, we seek authenticity from superficial substitutes. Maybe the clothes we wear, maybe in the vocation that we choose, maybe by determining that, you know what, no matter what, doggone it, I'm going to be honest. No matter what. But even then, we find there that even in our best attempts at total honesty, that real authenticity eludes us. We're still left wondering where to find it. We, we seem to have this innate, built-in dishonesty. We come by our dishonesty, honestly. It's a trap, really, and we're the trap. All humanity is stuck in this trap. We want authenticity. We want realness. But it's not found out there, and it's not found... In here. So what's a human to do? Well, in Christ, the secret is found, as I hope we'll see today. But not all who call themselves Christians have this secret. Some have forgotten it. Pretensions and authenticity have built up over time like moss. Other Christians have never had anything to forget. Christianity, for some of us, at least before, was all about doing something or not doing something. Do this, do that, just to get better. Better life, better wife, better, better uh, job, better money management, better kids, just better. But deep down, the Holy Spirit is calling to us and saying, isn't there something better than better? <laughs> Isn't there something that transcends better? Isn't there best? And this is the, the fashionable, noble thing to say today, that there is too much mystery to really know the truth. So authenticity becomes kind of shrugging our shoulders and saying that the only truth is acknowledging that we can't really know what the truth is. So we give up and we return to this futile cycle of trying just to get better. Better holiness, better disciplines, better blouse, better house, better spouse. But God, in His great mercy, like a spotlight shining into a deep fog, brings His Word to us. Like the sun seeks to burn through an early morning mist, God's Word holds out for us the secret, the true way to authenticity, a realness that's not found anywhere else. And this, this has been a wonder of wonders to me that actually... We don't find authenticity by seeking authenticity. We find authenticity when we seek and find Christ. And when we find Christ, when we seek first God and His kingdom and His righteousness, we find authenticity and we find a myriad of other blessings.
That is the way God works. And it is awesome to think about, awesome to experience. Well, God has revealed himself in just this way um, to Paul in 1 Thessalonians. So please turn with me there. And he revealed himself in just this way to many of the citizens of Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a great city located in Eastern Europe. And Paul and his co-workers, Silas and Timothy, had traveled to Thessalonica from Philippi. Suffering accompanied their message there at Philippi, but they kept going down the road to Thessalonica. Getting into town, they first went to the Jewish synagogue. This was always Paul's practice. The Jews came first. But if they rejected the message, and they did, then he would offer the gospel to anyone else anyone else, to use the vocabulary of the Bible, to whoever God had appointed to receive the gospel in that city. That's who Paul was looking for. Believe they did. So many so that Luke records in Acts 17 that the synagogue leaders were getting jealous, violently jealous of losing all of these people and probably losing business contacts in the community. And so they stirred up the leading men and women of the city against the new church, against the Christians. They actually took the church's host, Jason, dragged him out of his house in front of the city leaders and forced him to basically post bond for himself and the other church leaders and for Paul and Silas and Timothy so that they would behave themselves. So Paul is faced with a choice. Does he stay and remain silent? No. (laughs) Or does he stay and assert his rights as a Roman citizen? No. There's no time for that. There's something infinitely more valuable than asserting his rights as a Roman citizen. The proclamation of the gospel. And so, abruptly, he and the two others got up and left Thessalonica and moved on down the road to Berea. From the very beginning, this new church suffered persecution. Threats, assaults. Possibly, later on, we learn that they write to Paul and they're concerned about Someone who has died, at least one person who has died. So it's possible that this person actually died as a result of these persecutions. They were real, they were fierce, and they continued even on after Paul left Thessalonica. On top of this, the city's prime location uh, on the Via Ignatia, the great highway of the Roman Empire, brought lots of different charlatans, philosophical teachers to town. Kind of uh, modern-day self-help philosophers were trying to make a name for themselves, fly-by-night teachers who were really just looking for a following and some money. So the persecution of the church took two tracks. One track was brutal and obvious. The other was more subtle. It was a constant cajoling to the church to give up this whole business of following Christ, claiming that Paul and the others were no different than these other traveling philosophers. Paul was gone, they said, and that just demonstrated that he too was one of these inauthentic fly-by-night hucksters. So Paul, from another city, writes this letter to the new church. And first, he explains to them that their experience is authentic because the message of the gospel came to them in an authentic way. Utterly authentic. In chapter 1, this authenticity was in the power that they experienced when they received the gospel. Look with me at chapter 1, starting in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope 
and our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. For you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia. But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So that we need not say anything. For they themselves report to us concerning what... Uh, concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The message was authentic. The messengers were authentic. And the Thessalonians' response was so authentic it was talked about across the subcontinent. So then Paul elaborates in chapter 2 what this looked like, reminding them of just how these messengers, these three men, were authentic, were sincere, and how they delivered the message, how they spoke the gospel. We see in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 2 that it's their message that was spoken with complete integrity, Paul says. They weren't like those traveling self-help guys. But instead, in verses 7 and 8... Paul says, we treated you with the sincere and sacrificial affection of a nursing mother with her child. That's how we were to you. We adorned the gospel. We looked like the gospel. We looked like Christ to you. Not only that, but in verses 9 through 12, he says, we were like a good father to you. We knew that we had to live out before you what we were teaching to be authentic. Paul's not bragging here. He's just stating the facts. We looked like Christ. But remember, Paul thanked God for all of this at the beginning of this section. It was only through God's power and grace that they were able to do any of this. They were authentic, not of themselves, but because God had granted this to them. So now in verses 13 through 16, Paul reminds the Thessalonians of their own reactions to the messengers and the message. Their response was authentic and it continues to be authentic. The parents, or the, excuse me, the children became like their parents. The Thessalonians became like Paul and the others because Paul and the others were imitating Christ. They became authentic people. But remember, authenticity was just the byproduct of finding Christ, and savoring Him, treasuring Him above all things. So let's read verses 13 through 16. This is where we're going to be spending most of our time today. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind but by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. 
so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. The main thrust of this passage comes in the middle of verse 13, that when they heard the Word of God, they accepted it. Not as the pontifications from the religious musings of some man, but as what it really truly is, the Word of God. I want to stop here and attempt to define what I've been meaning by authentic so far. I think it means to know the truth and to be deeply characterized by the truth. That's what I mean by authentic. To know the truth and to be as deeply as a person can be characterized by that truth. Oxford Dictionary defines it this way. To be made in such a way so as to faithfully resemble the original. The only way anyone becomes truly authentic in God's universe is to faithfully resemble God. And how does this happen? There is no other way to even begin to be authentic as a human being than through what we're going to talk about today. There is no other way. We could go so far as to say that an authentic Christian is really saying the same thing twice. To be a true Christian is to begin to be authentic as a human being, not perfect, but to begin to be truly authentic as we were made to be. I don't mean, again, that Christians are perfect but that those of us in Christ have tasted of this perfect authenticity. We want more of it, and we look forward to that day when we will have it perfectly. But I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. Um, We also need to define here what accepted actually means. Um, Most of our translations say the word accepted here, that the Thessalonians accepted the word of God. But there's a few translations that use the word welcome, and this helps us. The Thessalonians welcomed this, not with a cold mental acceptance that it's God's book, but God granted to them that they would welcome it as his self-revelation to them, as the self-revelation of the God of the universe. God is the creator of all mankind, the sovereign king of all, and yet man has rebelled against the sovereign king and has been left in a state of total ruin. But God, being rich in mercy, sent His own Son to die in our place that we might be forgiven and reconciled to this high King. And Jesus rose from the dead that those who have placed their faith in Him and have repented of their sins, turned from their sins and turned to Christ, can walk in this newness of life and one one day share in this newness of life fully. Like a, like a bowling ball in, the bed, in a bed. This is the, the central thought that everything else flows to in the Bible. This is it. The Bible is the, the most important thoughts and deeds of this sovereign king of the universe. The most important thoughts and deeds, at least, that he wants us to know, his creation. And right in the middle is the gospel. And right in the middle is it recorded for us right here in this word. In black and white. This is a divine text that must be truly accepted as it truly is. But when we do, we find Jesus. And so to accept it means to welcome it with gratitude and joy and submission and wonder and love and awe and savoring and grief and fear and repentance and faith and love that we didn't know that we had because we didn't have it. God gave it to us through this word. 
we taste of it, and we, we praise him as, as we most utterly can because of what we find in this word, because we find him in this word. That's what accepting the word of God means, and much more. It's a, it's a galaxy of stars that Paul was talking about when he says accepting this word. And yet, we're going to pull out four of these stars today from the text. Four elements of accepting the word of God for what it truly is. The word of God. Well, we can put these four stars into four different words. Mercy, infinity, change, and joy. Say that again. Mercy, infinity, change, and joy. Well, first, mercy. Again, Paul writes in verse 13, Again, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. The Thessalonians didn't just take their words as the words of men, not as the, well, that's, that's, that's your opinion. There was none of that. They accepted them truly as the word of God. The reason why Paul thanks God both here and at the beginning of the letter is because he knows that they didn't do this themselves. They didn't come to this conclusion themselves. A human being never comes to this conclusion himself. Only by the mercy of God upon that person. It is the only way that someone can can accept God's words. That the the scales can come off. That the blindness is erased. And he can see this for what it truly is. The most important words to man from his creator. And so when when Paul thinks about this, when he thinks about the Thessalonians, he thinks first about not the Thessalonians, but what God did for the Thessalonians. That God awakened them. God gave them this mercy. Nothing draws a person to hear the word of God and receive it and accept it. Nothing except the mercy of God. I think there are probably some of us in this room today who are reading the word, but look at it like... Do you, do you remember those, uh, those digital wall hangings? with the, the digital design and you had to stare in it for, I don't know, sometimes I could, and, 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 and the, you know, all of a sudden a 3D dolphin jumped out at you or something and you, and you, wow, a dolphin, neat, cool. I think some of us read our Bibles this way. We, we stare at it and we, and we, we read it and, and, and we're hoping that by, by reading it more and reading it harder, reading it better, that we can somehow get it, that, that the words will jump on the page and it'll become three-dimensional to us, that we'll really get it, maybe just by, by trying harder. But I would say to you today that the first step to really get the Word of God is not to try harder, not to read harder, but to drop to your knees with your Bible open before you and beg God to give you the grace and the mercy to really get it to submit to, to it, that, that it would be, become a part of you, that it would become the, the, uh, deep down part of the very fiber of your being, that it would define you, that you would truly get it. What you need to do is pray with the psalmist from Psalm 119. I love it that Nate and the others read from Psalm 119 earlier. And David says in verse 18, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things. 
out of your law. God, open my eyes that I would really get this, that I would see this. Some of us have kids, and we bring them to church, and we maybe enroll them in ICS. Maybe we bring them to Pastor Kurt in the youth group. But something's missing. Something's missing. We, we sense our own lack of authenticity in it, and it gnaws at you. Because you see it starting to form in your kids. And you're thinking to yourself, ah, this is not good. <laughs> uh, what do I do? I realize, like Paul to the Thessalonians, that I've been appointed to bring the gospel to my kids, but, uh, huh, something ain't right. And I don't know where to go. I say to you, pray that God would reveal to you Himself in His Word. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6, that blessed are those who are poor in spirit, that they understand their spiritual poverty. For theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I tell you, if you're provoked at this point, if you understand your spiritual poverty, if you're in this position, I say to you, don't do anything else. Open your Bible, kneel before the Father, and ask Him ask Him to grant you this mercy and this grace that you would truly see it and that you would be truly changed by it. Do this and don't do anything else. Don't be afraid of what anyone else thinks. Ask Him to do this. That you would... No, as Paul prayed for the Ephesians in Ephesians 3, that the height and depth and length of God's love for you, that you would really know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you would be filled with all the fullness of God, that you would find Christ, and then upon finding Him, you would find, amongst a thousand other things, authenticity before your family. Come before Him, bringing nothing but your great need. Because then He gets all the glory and you get more good than you could possibly imagine. We need His mercy. We desperately need it. You're a beggar, so go ahead, beg. (laughs) Beg before God for this. We need His mercy. That's the first thing. The second element, the second star in this constellation is infinity. Or to put it a better way, infinite value. Infinite value. The Thessalonians accepted and welcomed God's Word as infinitely valuable. In the verses that follow, we see that the Word came to them, as I've already said, in intense suffering and persecution. Yet they did not waver from it. In chapter 4, Paul addresses concern, as I've already said, that someone who has died... And possibly this person was killed underneath this persecution. In chapter 1, verse 6, Paul writes that they received the word in much affliction, and yet they valued this word more than their comforts, just as Paul and his other helpers did. More than life itself. I was talking yesterday with Paul. Um, I forget Paul's last name, so forgive me if you're here today, Paul. But Paul is Morris's brother, one of the one of our. Um, Uduk, brothers and sisters. And if you don't know what happened with the Uduk, just very briefly, they fled from eastern Sudan to Ethiopia to um, escape violence from Islamists there 
in the country of, of Sudan. And I asked him, because he's telling me this story, homes being burned and worse, why did you stay with Jesus? What, what kept you with Jesus through all of it? And I loved what he said. We stayed with Jesus because he is our life. Without him, we wouldn't exist. He is everything. He is our life. It's that simple. Only the Bible creates this kind of faith. Only the Bible creates and sustains this kind of spiritual life. And only the Bible gives us true hope, hope of the life that is to come, as Paul wrote in Romans 15. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Hope through what? Through the encouragement of the Scriptures. And what do we find there? We find Christ. We would be damned if we didn't find Jesus in His Word. That is how infinitely valuable this Word is. It's beyond our comprehension when we really stop to think about it, but we need to. We need to stop and think about what an awesome treasure this is. (laughs) Amazing. We would never have known of His death for us in our place or His resurrection that we too could be united with Him in His newness of life. (laughs) We so often take it for granted what we possess in this Word. It is truly infinitely valuable. It is worth dying for. This is the 400th year of the anniversary of the King James Version of the Bible. William Tyndale, whose most of his work initially has found its way into the King James Bible, uh, was strangled (laughs) for his work. He was given that privilege because he had previously been a priest. Um, So he was strangled before his body was burned at the stake. Men like William Tyndale have died to bring us this word through the centuries, let alone the disciples, let alone the apostles. It is worth dying for because it is so infinitely valuable because of what we have gained in this word. Amazing. And not only this, not only in in an objective sense is is the Bible infinitely valuable? But it is infinitely valuable in this, this subjective sense that we taste of God there, that we, we get Him, that we experience Him, that we feel the, the warmth of His affectionate love as a Father. We shudder and marvel at the wrath that was placed on His Son instead of us. We read me when in Isaiah 53 we read, by his stripes we are healed. We see this especially again in verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 6, where Paul writes that they were imitators of the apostles and of the Lord. They had in this strong sense seen Christ in the apostles and in their words. It is through this word and by this grace that anyone can see God and taste of Him and so identify with His Son, Jesus Christ, that they are saved. I want to read to you a short um, account from the book Tortured for Christ by Richard Wurmbrand. 
believe I'm pronouncing that right. He was a Romanian pastor during and after World War II when Christianity was heavily persecuted by the communists. He writes about an encounter here with a Russian soldier. For me to preach the gospel to the Russians is heaven on earth. I have preached the gospel to men of many nations, but I have never seen a people drink in the gospel like the Russians. They have such thirsty souls. An Orthodox priest, a friend of mine, telephoned me and told me that a Russian officer had come to him to confess. My friend did not know Russian. However, knowing that I speak Russian had given him my address. The next day, this man came to see me. He longed for God, but had never seen a Bible. He had no religious education and never attended religious services. Churches in Russia then were very scarce. He loved God without the slightest knowledge of him. (laughs) I read to him the Sermon on the Mount and the parables of Jesus. After hearing them, he danced around the room in a rapturous joy, proclaiming, What a wonderful beauty! How could I live without knowing this Christ? Reminds me of what Paul said. (laughs) It was the first time that I saw someone so joyful in Christ. Then I made a mistake. I read to him the passion and crucifixion of Christ without having prepared him for this. He had not expected it. And when heard how Christ was beaten, how he was crucified, and that in the end he died, he fell into an armchair and began to weep bitterly. He had believed in the Savior, and now his Savior was dead. I looked at him and was ashamed. I had called myself a Christian, a pastor, and a teacher of others, but I had never shared the sufferings of Christ and this Russian officer as this Russian officer now shared them. Looking at him, it was like seeing Mary Magdalene weeping at the foot of the cross, faithfully weeping when Jesus was a corpse in the tomb. Then I read to him the story of the resurrection and watched his expression change. He had not known that his Savior arose from the tomb. When he heard this wonderful news, he beat his knees and swore, using very dirty but very holy profanity. This was his crude manner of speech. Again, he rejoiced, shouting for joy. He is alive! He is alive! He danced around the room once more, overwhelmed with happiness. I said to him, let us pray. He did not know how to pray. He did not know our, quote, holy phrases. He fell on his knees together with me, and his words of prayer were this. Oh God, what a fine chap you are. If I were you and you were me, I would never have forgiven you of your sins. But you really are a very nice chap. I love you with all my heart. Vermbrin goes on. I think that all the angels in heaven stopped what they were doing to listen to this sublime prayer from a Russian officer. The man had been one for Christ. Note closely here. It was only by the word of God that this man received Christ. He knew God. He had some sense of God, some, some love of God. But he was only saved through the word of God. Only there did he find God. He found God himself there. And and in just a few minutes, he tasted of him. God's mercy came down upon him and he rejoiced. That is what God does through his word. It's the only way that he brings people to himself. That he gives people this infinite treasure that is himself. The greatest treasure in God's universe is God himself. And the way that he reveals this truth to anyone is through this infinitely valuable word. This Russian soldier could instantly identify with David who 
repeatedly in the Psalms repeats this thought from Psalm 119. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Not fears your testimonies, not respects your statutes, but delights in them. By the way, that's verses 12 through 16 of Psalm 119. To delight in the word of the Lord is to delight in the God behind this word. Because they reveal who he truly is. Note the connection here, by the way, of delighting and meditating. The two, the two ways, the two things always go together, feeding one another. So I encourage you, Christian, if your delight has grown cold, I encourage you, spend some time in Psalm 119. Read and meditate. Soak, percolate. Let, let the word dwell in you richly, as Paul says in Colossians. Let it dwell in you richly. Meditate upon it. Sit in awe of its perfections as you read, and pray. Pray with your Bible open. Pray God's Word. Well, we've seen that we need His mercy. And when we get His mercy, we find an infinitely valuable gift. And when that infinitely valuable gift comes, number three, a person is changed. It forever is so. It cannot not be so. The person is changed. That's our third word, change. We see this in a couple places. In verse 13, Paul writes that the Word of God, which is at work in you. Paul knew that the Word of God was at work in the Thessalonians. He knew this. But so did the people across the entire subcontinent of Macedonia and Achaia. They were truly changed. In his first letter, John simply says this. Chapter 3, verse 6. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. It's simply impossible. The person changed by God obeys God. The person given a new heart by the mercy of God wants God and wants to follow Him. You and I don't beat the devil. We only endure temptation and we only do that through the word of God, just as Jesus did in the desert by only speaking scripture to the devil's lies. But I want you to see something else here. True change is not a straitjacket. We often see that, 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 that if I change, if I really submit myself to God, then that'll be kind of a consolation prize to me in life. But, yeah, I, I get God. Uh, I, I'm kind of right with God, but it's not really what I want to do. It's a, a less fun life, really. Less enjoyable, less satisfying. Hardly. Biblical God-granted change is true freedom. And what do I mean by that? Well, I'll just quote John Piper here who says that true freedom is wanting what you ought to do. And that's what God does when He changes a heart. He gives us the desire to do what we ought to do, what God wants us to do. We don't get it by trying harder. We don't get this way by 
by saying to ourselves, I've got to get better. I've got to get cracking on this God thing. No, this happens because God changes us. And He changes us through this divine text. By His grace. You are now His and you want what He wants and you find out what He wants by getting this book in you. As Jesus prayed in John 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And again in John 8, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth found here will set you free, but to give you true freedom. This is true freedom. I just want to praise God for that right now. I, I thank you, God, that you, have, you give us true freedom through this word. True freedom to truly want what you want. It's amazing. And it is the very means by which God uses... To bring this freedom to us, he, he does this through His Holy Spirit, through this book that's sitting on our laps right now. So what if my life has not changed? I made a decision a while back, but if I'm honest with myself, not much is different. My diagnosis then goes to one of two tracks. Either your heart has not been changed, or you're dangerously ne neglecting. You're, you're being negligent with this infinitely valuable gift that God has given you. In either case, I say to you, don't place your faith in that decision that you made long ago. Again, bow to the Father. Turn to His Word. Trust His Son. Trust His Son as revealed in His Word. I've already mentioned Psalm 119. Perhaps you need to go there or perhaps... You need to simply watch the Lord again. Perhaps you need to go back to the Gospel of John and just watch the Lamb go to slaughter for you. Maybe there's someone you know in this congregation that you could approach to simply get together and read the Word together. Pray over it together. Talk about it together. But the last thing, we need mercy. This mercy grants us this an infinitely valuable gift. And it changes us. Indeed, it changes us. And the last thing is joy. Joy. We're about to look more at verses 14 through 16. And you might say to yourself, Pastor, uh, I read these verses and I don't see the word joy here. Hold on. Paul writes, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So it was always to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. We will look more intently at these verses and the, the issues surrounding suffering and persecution um, more intently next week. But for now, look with me back at chapter 1, verse 6. Again, Paul says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy 
of the Holy Spirit. Where does this joy come from? Where does it come from? Because these two were found repeatedly in the New Testament. Suffering and joy. Why? Where does this come from? Suffering actually serves to bring the true Christian closer to Christ. How does this happen? The Spirit brings life, and this life brings a joyful submission to God and to His Word. And this joyful submission to the Word brings change. And this change necessarily brings suffering. It has always been this way, Paul says. It was good yesterday to see Bruce Boldrin, um, or the day before yesterday, sitting in a Honda, not in a hospital bed. <laughs> what a beautiful thing to see. If you don't know Bruce, uh, he previously had leukemia, and the doctors basically eliminated his immune system. And then his brother's T-cells, I think, were implanted into his body. And so now Bruce's immune system is really his brother's. It's his brother's cells coursing through his body. Well, his body rejected them recently. And that's why Bruce was back in the hospital. His body sends to these cells as foreign bodies and attacked them. Attacked them, seeking to kill them. And it has always been this way with this world, Paul says. With the Lord Jesus, with the prophets, with Paul and his friends being driven out of Thessalonica, it has always and forever will be this way. That when God brings this change, this person who has been changed is no longer of this world. He is now a foreigner. He is now alien. And this world hates that. The world seeks to remove it. It will always be this way. Again, we will look at this more closely next week. But this chain of events is everywhere in the New Testament. So again, where does joy come in? Where does, where, where does joy happen in this? Well, first off, let's say suffering for Christ and that accompanying joy are distinguishing marks of a true Christian. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, they are the badge of a true Christian. So where does this joy come from? Well, the suffering, I can think of three ways that we see here in the text. The suffering actually serves to bring the true Christian closer to Christ. And we see this in three ways. First, it confirms the believer. The believer realizes, wait a second, I really am in Christ. And there is incredible joy in this. To, to, to not only know this, but to receive external confirmation from this, that I am suffering in the same way that my Lord did. Confirmation of my salvation. Secondly, we see in verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 6 again, that they became imitators of the Lord. It brings this person to a more intimate fellowship, a more intimate communion with the Lord. A communion that does not happen by any other way. Suffering is the means by which God uses to bring His children closer to His Son. In a communion that we never otherwise would have experienced. It is this way. It has always been this way. And it will be this way until He returns. This is the truth. Which, by the way, means 
we do people a disservice when we leave this out of the gospel. <laughs> when we minimize the gospel and leave this out. Paul didn't, as we'll see next week. He was very upfront with the Thessalonians about it. Well, thirdly, it brings into sharper relief the wrath that we were saved from. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 10. Paul describes the Thessalonians as people who are waiting for His Son, God's Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Connect this with the wrath that is coming for those who are persecuting them in chapter 2, verse 16. Paul says, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. Very briefly, what Paul is saying, depending upon the time of the writing of the letter, it's very likely that there was a a great persecution that had broken out uh, upon Jews across the Roman Empire probably just years before Paul wrote this. And so he's thinking about this most likely, but he's also thinking that this is just a foretaste of the wrath that is to come. The wrath that is to come for each and every person who does not receive this mercy from God that we've been talking about. But theirs, it's already full. Uh, their, their, their fountain, their, their pool underneath their fountain of sin is already full, full and it's overflowing. It's simply waiting. But as we experience suffering for Christ, we see ever more clearly His amazing grace to us. And we see what we will escape from. And it brings joy. It brings joy to us that we never would have otherwise. Joy. Where we rejoice in what He has done. By by nothing that we have done, granting us this grace, granting us this great salvation. And one day, this escape from the wrath that is to come. It is ours and it is certain. And the suffering tells us this. Well, we need His mercy. We need this infinite gift, this infinitely valuable gift in His Word. The only way we are truly changed is through this Word. And it is confirmed to us through joy and suffering. These are the distinguishing marks of an authentic person. So I ask you today, do you have these? Do these distinguish you? Let's pray. Father, as we move to communion now, we remember what You have done in our place. We remember Your amazing grace and mercy to us to come as a man, live a perfect life, die the death that we deserved, to satisfy the Father's wrath, that we could be called children of God. We praise You and we thank You for this. I pray that You would rain down Your mercy upon these people. That You would rain down Your mercy upon us. 
that you would grant to us mercy to see you for who you really are in your word. And that you would take your word and that you would change us. That you would form yourself within us. That you would be glorified in us. That your kingdom and your glory would run because of us. That your will would be done. We are only beggars. So God, we pray that you do this. In the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.